Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports. This is Dan here. As we often do, we went a little long with our episode last week on the Baltimore Orioles, so we decided to turn it into two episodes. We left off right about in 1992, just as Camden Yards was opening and the Orioles were acquiring the great Mike Mussina. We hope you enjoy, and thanks again to our special guest, Mike Petty, for joining us. 92 was also the first full year of Mike Mussina, and... It feels like with him and, you know, when you look at the roster of the 92 team, even though it was still a few years away, you see a lot of the core pieces in place for what the, the 95 through 97 teams would become. Yeah, that Messina starting that season, and I remember, I think uh, he almost wins 20 games that year. I don't, I don't know how many he ends up with, but um, you could definitely tell that, you know, he, there was something there. And then especially for the Orioles teams, I mean, it was one thing having Cal and stuff like that. There was never a pitcher. The Orioles had drafted, I think Ben McDonald first overall and everybody got all excited about it. And then that just didn't pan out. So when Messina all of a sudden starts showing and he was from, I think upstate Pennsylvania. So he was like, not, not local, but you know, it was somewhat, you know, he wasn't necessarily like a baseball hotbed. And that was just hopefully the beginning of signs and, I, for my entire childhood, growing up around Phillies, Yankees, Red Sox fans, would just be screaming at how good of a pitcher Mike Messina was. And then it turns out nobody realized it until he became a Yankee. And then I had people coming back to me afterwards going, you know, how good he was. I was like, I've been telling you this for years. He went 18-5 and five that year. He started 32 games, 18-5, and five, ERA 2.54, which was the lowest of his career by quite a bit. Actually, that was one of the only times... I think that was the only time ZRA was under three, as I'm looking at it here. It definitely was, except the year before, which was only a partial year. So they're climbing in 92 and 93. And then in 94, they're doing well. Um, They wouldn't have won the division. The Yankees would have won. The Yankees had a big lead in the division. But correct me if I'm wrong on this, Mike. And they were uh, 63 and 49 at the strike. And I might miss some of the details, but didn't you have something in place where you were going to be like a that boy or in the bullpen for a game after the strike or something like that? Or was that something I was only half listening to when I was drunk in college? And I oh, it's, <laughs> it's something similar. And this is, it's actually a pretty good story. So my dad just somehow knew the, the white Sox bullpen catcher, like the coat or bullpen coach, excuse me. Okay. And I, I probably could get his name wrong. I think I know what it is, but I'd probably be wrong without it. But uh, there was a game that he invited us down. And I forget, there was going to be a game where there was some other access that just never happened. But there was a game we went to at Camden Yards and when the White Sox were playing there. And they took me into the White Sox dugout. 
And I think at the, the time their closer was, uh, was Bobby Thigpen. I remember that was like a big deal that I think uh, he was there. I remember I, I got to like run into uh, memorable blackjack McDowell. Uh, he was there, but I remember the coolest thing was I wanted to see Frank Thomas's locker and we got to see Frank Thomas's locker and in it is an autographed Cal Ripken bat. So to this day, I always thought it was cool. One of the biggest stars in the sport still wanted an autograph of Cal, but kind of piggybacking off that. So 93 going back a year is the all-star game. The last time the all-star game has been in Baltimore, obviously the famous Griffey hits the warehouse in the home run derby, which no one's ever done. We had passes and went to everything like went to, it was like the Gatorade all-star week. So we got to see the home run derby, saw everything. When we recently were packing to move, I found Polaroids from that week and there was like a all-star workout and I guess Mr. Baseball was coming out at the time. So there's Tom Selleck in like his uniform. Uh, he's in an Orioles uniform. So it's Tom Selleck and Michael Jordan in a White Sox uniform. So I have photos like Polaroids of Tom Selleck in an Orioles uniform and Michael Jordan in a White Sox uniform. So Michael Jordan was at the All-Star game? He was at the like the workout, I guess, beforehand. Oh, wow. So I'm assuming That's that... Crazy. Yeah. So, but yeah, no. So like you said, about 94 with the strike, the big thing with there is the Orioles trade for Rafael Palmero. And then that starts to really, it like changes the lineup even that much more. I think it's also worth noting that starting in 92, they have a new manager, Frank Robinson. They kind of, they finally kind of realize that he's uh, getting a little old to be a major league manager. It doesn't start stop the nationals from hiring him 10 years later, but that's a different story. Um, but did they have Johnny Oates for, from 92 to 94 who would end up going on to be the manager of the Rangers for a couple of years and then actually dies very young, unfortunately of a brain cancer, but Johnny Oates is the manager. And I think that that's another one of these steps towards building this team towards the future. So 95, you know, a bit of a truncated season coming out of the strike. And 95, actually, when you look at it, after, you know, what they'd done in 92, 93, and 94, where they'd won 89, 85, and then 63 and 49 in 94 in August, 95 is actually a bit of a disappointing season. They finished below 500, 71 and 73. Their manager that year is uh, Phil Regan for just a year, right, in 95. But all anybody remembers about 95, at least all I remember, and I think all most people remember, is September of 95. All year, it's pretty clear that, barring any freak injury, Cal Ripken is going to break Lou Gehrig's consecutive game streak. And in September, uh, what was it, September 6th, uh, it looks like it was here, Cal Ripken, in the fifth inning of the game, officially becomes baseball's Iron Man still iconic images with the warehouse and with the celebration. Mike, if you want to just talk a little about that streak and that, you know, moment and just kind of what that means in Orioles lore. Yeah. Sadly, I think it means so much that it overshadows the actual career he had, you know, just put the numbers as, you know, I've run into people who think that he's in the hall of fame at times for, you know, the streak and that's not why, but you know, it's partial. And it's, it's interesting because that's exactly what people think about Gehrig. And I mean, it's a little more forgivable with Gehrig because it was, he died, you know, he stopped playing in 1938. But people think, oh, yeah, Gehrig, he played in all those games and he made that speech and, you know, then he died and that was it. And it's like, no, look at look at how many years in a row he had 170 RBI. <laughs> but um, yeah, so anyway, guy didn't mean to cut you off, but I just that's an interesting parallel where it's like some that streak kind of overshadows, unfortunately, to people who don't know that much. No, this guy was a dominant player for the better part of 20 years. So 
Go ahead. Right. No, yeah. And then, you know, continuing, it always seemed like Cal had a flair for the dramatic. So the night before in the 21-30 game, he homers. 21-31, he homers. Um, you know, that continues on into, you know, his final All-Star game, he homers. But no, it just, the Orioles had just so many down years there for a while that just, you know, I guess at some point the streak kind of did take over a little bit just because of, you know, he had to be in the lineup. You know, you weren't going to snap, you know, at 1,500 games because the Orioles were bad. But it just gave, like, some legitimacy to the Orioles and the, as a fan base, too. It was just like you knew you still had Cal. You still had that team. I, you said that you're absolutely right. It was a down year that year, especially when they had made those some of those moves, bringing in bigger guys. And I don't know if the streak kind of wore down the entire team. But if you look at the lineup, that even the night that they win, it's – it's terrible. Like it's not good, you know, but it just, yeah, I know like Manny Alexander is like the guy who catches the ball to, to and make the game official. And you start looking and, you know, besides Bonilla and Palmero, it's really, there's not a whole lot there. Hall of Famer, Harold Baines. I was, I'm a huge Harold Baines fan. I will, I will fight anyone over a Harold Baines conversation, but <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it, it was just something, especially, like I said, I, we had that family plan growing up and I, I'm, I guess I just got greedy with it. You look back, it was like, I knew every time I was going to, you know, the game on Sunday that Cal was going to be in the lineup. It wasn't, he wasn't not going to be there, but funny parallel, the most famous, probably closest point he was to missing a game was a game against the Mariners. And I was at that game. Uh, Mike Messina hits, I think Bill Hasselman in the head over like after a home run, well, Hasselman charges the mound and Cal runs in and ends up like tweaking his knee to the point. He almost felt like he couldn't put any weight on it the next morning. So I almost was at the game that ended the streak pretty much in a brawl. I'll give you the lineup for, cause I found it against the California angels that night. Um, so Brady Anderson led off center field, Manny Alexander, second base, Rafael Palmero at first, Bobby Bonilla at in right. He was then replaced later in the game by Jarvis Brown, who sounds like an NBA referee. Cal Ripken, shortstop. Harold Baines, DH. Chris Hoyles catching. Jeff Hewson, Husson at third base. I think it was Hewson, yeah. Hewson. Husson was the school that LaSalle lost to that time in hometown homecoming. <laughs> and then Mark Smith was the left fielder. And Jesse Orozco did pitch in relief in that game. So, Yes. So, before we before we move on, I just want to, Mike, to your point about Harold Baines. If anybody's listening, just take a look at the last sort of seven or eight years of Harold Baines' career. He basically just went back and forth from the Orioles to the White Sox like four or five times, which is uh, was very interesting to see. The other question I had about the streak was, do you think, and I'll, you know, obviously to Andrew too, at some point, because I remember at the time hearing that there were people that saying the streak had become somewhat of a distraction and even doing my research, even Brooks Robinson says that uh, Ripken maybe should have sat out a couple of games at some point. Do you think the streak became either a distraction to the team or even just bad for Ripken himself because he just was wearing himself out? Uh, it's possible. I mean, I think the team in general was just bad. It wasn't run well. I think there was infighting. I mean, one of the things we didn't get into is right around, I think 93 is when Angelos family takes over the Orioles. You know, it was just a mess. I think they got, and he acquired the team through bankruptcy court, I think was like, they had pushed out the previous owner. There was just, there really wasn't anything good with the Orioles in those times other than Camden Yards and especially in the late 80s. So I think for a while there, I don't know if Cal felt indebted to the Orioles fans to give them something, you know, but his numbers, there's a lot of people feel like, you know, he accumulated a lot of stats, but I mean, he was still winning, 
you know, he won all his gold gloves and making all-star teams. And so I don't know. I mean, I just, there wasn't him sitting five games a year. I don't, wouldn't have affected anything how the Orioles finished any. And I think another point that needs to be made, and this was very much talked about in 1995 and it's been very much talked about since baseball was so happy to have Cal Ripken Jr. and the streak coming off of the strike in 1995. I don't think you can underestimate just what the baseball strike meant, not just in baseball or not even just in sports, but just in the American psyche. This was something, this was a, this was a huge news story, you know, today, you know, and there's talk that there might be a big labor strike or, you know, a big labor stoppage in baseball next season. There was something about that strike that year that turned so many people off to baseball. Some for good. I mean, I think there's people, and this is crazy to think about a quarter century later, but I think there are people that still to this day that are still alive that stopped being baseball fans after that strike in 94. And, you know, you had fans throwing money on the field at the players. You had the whole replacement player debacle in spring training of 95. And it was really sort of the fans turning on the player, the players and the owners, but mostly the players for the first time, you know, the kind of thing that you almost see constantly today where the fans, you know, hate a player, whether it's for his off the field antics or his politics or he's overpaid or this or that, that in some ways really comes to a head for the first time in 1994, 1995 during the strike. And so to have Ripken, who was this quiet, humble guy and, you know, the, the whole, the marketing was, well, all he's done is just show up to work every day. It was so relatable. It was something that people could get behind. And so, I don't want to say that it, well, it saved baseball, but it brought positive attention on baseball in September of 1995 for the first time in a couple of years. Yeah. I think the thing I'll say about that is, and this is not, I wound up like I was going to start criticizing Cal Ripken. That's not where I'm going with this. Think back then. And and I, I like to think that now there's a little bit more of a nuanced take about players versus owners and things. And there was, there was a lot of like, well, they get played to paid to play a game. Like what's their problem? Blah, 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 blah. The one thing that you can never defend the players about with that is doing it when they did it, doing it in mid August, doing it in the middle of a season, they could have very easily said, listen, we have our certain issues. There will not be a 1995 season if we don't work this out. We are going on strike the day the World Series ends and figure it out. The fact that they went on strike in mid-August, what was it, August 12th? I feel like it was either the 12th or the 16th, I want to say. This is one of the earliest things I remember. The spring, The summer of 94 is full of... Some of my first sports memories, starting in June, ending in August. And if you want to hear more about uh, one big aspect of the summer of 94, check out our podcast in the Knicks of the 90s with uh, Paul Nepper. Check out our podcast in three months when when that's the first chapter of suffering for Knicks fans that ended. (laughs) As, As millions of freshly vaccinated fans pour into the Canyon of Heroes to watch Julie, the Dr. Randall, the new mayor of New York, celebrate a championship with the greatest owner in professional sports, James Dolan. Anyway, back to the show. Lots uh, of parallels between Dolan and Angelos. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, so anyway, back back to what I was talking about. 
so yeah, that, that, that was kind of my point on that. So, you know, 95 for the, for the Orioles feels like it's a lot about Ripken. Uh, I mean, they're all that, but I mean, it was about the streak. He gets the streak, but overall a disappointing year. This is the first year of the new playoff system, which will come into play in 96. This is the first year of the new playoff system. The Red Sox actually win the division. The Yankees make the wild card. You have the, the two rounds of playoffs. And we will, not that all we're going to talk about the rest of the time is the next two years, but I feel like 96, 97 are the two years that we're really going to hone in on for the Orioles. They get to the ALCS both years. Both years, there's plenty of drama, unfortunately, from an Orioles standpoint, plenty of, uh, of heartbreak. Um, Could have tons for this portion of the podcast. And, I, and I'll say up front that, that when I was talking to Mike about this, when I was doing my research last weekend, I know a lot more about 96, obviously, because the Yankees were the team involved. But reading about 97, I was like, wow, 97 was a better opportunity. But we'll, we'll get to 97. So let's start with 96. Offseason of 96, Davey Johnson is hired as the manager, you know, formerly the manager of the Mets in 86. This is one of the first, it's the first real off season in a couple of years. It's one of the first off seasons of like full on unfettered free agency. And the Orioles are a big player in that. The Orioles had the highest payroll in baseball in 1996, I believe. Either 96 or 97, one of those two years. They had the highest payroll in baseball and they go into, you know, the season with, a core of Ripken and Palmero and uh, Brady Anderson and a starting rotation that's anchored by Mucina, who by this point is established as one of the top pitchers in baseball. And Scott Erickson is on that team. So this is a very good team. Plus they, they bring in Roberto Alomar. They, and I was, yeah, I'm sorry, I was pulling that up. They also brought in BJ Serhoff. They bring in Roberto Alomar. This is a team, I have the opening day starters right here, you know, the opening day roster. This isn't the batting order, this is just the list. Roberto Alomar, Brady Anderson, Bobby Bonilla, Jeffrey Hammonds, Chris Hoyles, Rafael Palmero, Cal Ripken Jr., BJ Serhoff, Tony Tarasco, and Mike Mussina on the mound. That's a damn good team in 1996. Well, if you look in the, on this team, Alomar's a Hall of Famer, Ripken's a Hall of Famer, Mussina's obviously a Hall of Famer, were it not for steroids, Palmero would probably be a Hall of Famer. I don't know that he necessarily would deserve it, but he would be. Eddie Murray, who's 40 years old, but still is their their main DH for the year, especially late in the season and in the playoffs. They, they don't uh, they trade for him midseason from Cleveland. He had been in the in the World Series with Cleveland the year before. Brady Anderson hits 50 home runs. This is a stacked, stacked offensive lineup in 1996. Yeah, when they get Alomar, I just remember that was the moment where it all of a sudden felt like, oh, we're serious now. You know, it's like that. I mean, we missed it two years before they're filming Major League Two, but it's almost like a scene from that is when they got Alomar. It was like, oh, man, like we're actually going for it. We're actually going. And obviously, like you said, they bring Eddie. Eddie comes back I'm 40 years old and he still cranked a few homers, eventually hits, I think, 500. I forget which season he ends up doing it. And Mike but is like, alluding to the fact that they filmed Major League Two at Memorial Stadium before they tore it down. Well, the, the so Major League Two, they actually pass Camden Yards off as the Indian Stadium. Oh, it's Camden Yards. I always thought it was Memorial Stadium. I knew it was filmed in Baltimore. No, they filmed it at Camden Yards. Really? Yeah. So like that opening scene where he's like, they get Parkman and he's all like, Dan, uh, 
what's it? Uh, Randy Quaid is all is losing his mind. He's actually on Utah Street. You can see like can you can see it like it's. Yeah, I, I had never known that until watching it in college with Mike and realize, and then I having been to Camden Yards a few times at that point, and I was like, oh yeah, that's clearly Camden Yards. And you said Randy Quaid losing his mind. That was a nice preview of real life pretty soon. After that, so. <laughs> but yeah, no. So this season, you know, I just remember Brady, like I said, Brady Anderson hits 50 homers. Yeah. It just felt like, I think I forget how many games he let, he was let off hitting 50 homer. You know, I, I forget how many games he opened the game with a homer. I think he ended up, I feel like he got pretty close to Ricky Henderson's record that year. Um, yeah, it was just like, it was a really fun time to be an Orioles fan. Brady was actually, remember the MTV, was it the rock and jock softball? Brady would be in that every year, take his shirt off and everybody lose their mind. It was just like the Orioles were fun. Like the Orioles were a thing. He was a big star and I don't, I don't mean baseball wise. Uh, it was fleeting, but he was, this will sound, I was in what fifth grade in 90, the end of the 96 season. I was in fifth grade. He was on Sabrina, the teenage witch like on TGIF, which again, some of this sounds humorous now, but like if you were a kid back then and you know, a kid my age, it was like, that was a, a show that a lot of kids like Brady Anderson was on that. And yeah, he was on MTV's rock and jock baseball and you know, all of that. And he was, I think he might've been on the cover of the, one of the MLB video games that next year. Like he was a big deal. And then certainly you look back and go like, well, the guy hit 50 home runs out of nowhere in 1986. There was probably some substances involved, but you know, it was that at the time, nobody was particularly bothered by that. And um, I think you're in a weird year sort of in 96 because it's right before McGuire and Sosa blow up. Griffey's still there, obviously. Frank Thomas is still there. But I think Frank Thomas by 96, his best years were behind him. He was starting to hit some of those, you know, injury-plagued years that he had for the rest of the 90s. So MLB in 96 was sort of ready for another big home run hitting star. And Anderson kind of supplied that. And I think the fact that he got involved with all the pop culture stuff and everything probably helped him too. never hits he hit 50 home runs in 96. He had 16 the year before and 18 the year after. And just to clarify in 96, he hits 50 home runs in 149 games and 97. He only hits 18 home runs. And you might think, Oh, maybe he only played in like 110 games. No, he played in more games. He played in 151 games in 97. So he has 210 home runs for his career. 50 of them are in that one season. So it's like, what about, you know, 18% or whatever of his home runs are in that one season. Well, I feel like the Orioles kind of counterbalanced his, you know, Adonis figure. Cause I believe that year they also bring in David Wells into the rotation. So I feel like they kind of evened each other out. Yeah. David Wells who had won a title in Toronto a couple years earlier. And then it sort of bounced around. It's funny. Cause there's a, and again, we're just going to keep bringing up the Yankees and I, I realize that, but there's a lot of sort of weird back and forth. Wells and Mussina would go on later to be teammates on the Yankees. And then after the 96 season, Wells and Jimmy Key, and also in 96, you got Scott Kamenicki, another former Yankee, or that's a year later, I'm sorry, after 96. After 96, both Key and Kamenicki go from the Yankees to the Orioles, and David Wells goes from the Yankee, from the Orioles to the Yankees. Yeah, and that's something I think people don't realize is like the Yankees and Orioles were competing for free agents. Like this book I have, and we'll go to it a little, I have a book on the 96 Yankees, and it talks about in the off season, like them, they, Cone, David Cone, the Yankees, you know, had him and they traded for him in 95 and he's a free agent. The Yankees wanted to re-sign him, but he's got big money offers from the Baltimore Orioles, which 
again, and I'm not even trying to say this in like a belittling way, but now that's like a guy was trying to decide free agent money between the Yankees and the Orioles. That's also a funny story because in the middle of it, like the Yankees and Orioles are trading like, well, we'll give you an extra year. We'll give you an extra million. And like the day he decided he's going to make a decision, he gets a knock on his hotel room door from the Mets. And they're like, here's what we'll give you. And it's like way below what either the Yankees or the Orioles are offering him. And they're like, have you been reading the newspapers? Like, get out. Like, I don't know. That's just a funny aside, but the Mets went up and like, listen, we'll give you three years at 12 million. And he's like, get out. Like, and I'll say just going back to like, you know, especially in college, obviously we were there for, you know, the big Yankees, Red Sox and you know what, we all know what that rivalry becomes and always it has been. But for this period of time, the time period we're talking about to me, this was the rivalry. It was Orioles, Yankees. It was every day going. I, I don't think people understand what it's like to watch, you know, stay up all night in, like I said, in Yankee country, basically where I grew up watching MSG, listen to, you know, the Yankees announcers and then having to come in the next day and, you know, get your balls broken because the Orioles lost to the Yankees. You know, it's like, to me, this was the rivalry at this point. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest, you know, the first like figure, I remember 96, 97, really the first like years I was probably big into baseball and that the Yankees were good. If you had said to me, like, oh, who's the Yankees' biggest rivalry? I would have said the Orioles. I, didn't, I knew about Babe Ruth, but I didn't – if I knew about Bucky Dent, I don't know that I'd committed much of it to memory. I didn't know about all the years and all the rivalries. And, you know, the Yankees had been bad for a while. And in 96, the last time the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry was really a big deal was the late 70s because I remember – I remember one time, I think it was, I was reading like a sports, and I ultimately didn't end up getting any of these because I didn't have the money, but like they had an ad where it was like, you could send away for like a retro hat. And there was like four choices. And one of them was the 75 Red Sox hat with like the red and, you know, the Carlton Fisk hat with the red and the blue bill and everything. And I was like, oh, this hat looked kind of cool. Maybe I'll get this. And my dad was like, you're going to get a Red Sox hat? And I was, I was like, but they're not like the Yankees. I was like, the Yankees, it's like the, the Orioles are the Yankees' rival. My dad was like, no, the Red Sox are, are the And just to me, I was like, oh, I didn't know. Uh, and that's, I think in this book somewhere, they actually like, this book on the 96 Yankees, they mention like when the Yankees play the Red Sox, but they say like, that wasn't a factor then. Like the half this book is about Yankees-Orioles games, not Yankee, you know, they don't barely even talk about the Red Sox. Well, they had some of those marathon games early in the season. It was like a, a four-and-a-half, five-hour game, and Tino Martinez had a home run after midnight. It was like, I think they played in May or something. It was like two games back-to-back that both were like well over four hours, and it was, yeah, that was the rivalry. Let me, I'm pulling it up. They, I'm looking to see when they, because I, I have the, I have, I'm looking at the Orioles schedule, so I'm like, oh, where's the Yankees? Or where, anyway, I thought I was looking at the Yankees. Yeah, they played April 30th and May 1st. And April 30th was a nine inning game, but the Yankees won it 13 to 10. And then the next night was a 15 inning game that the Yankees won 11 to six, but they played 24 innings in two, in like 36 hours. So, the 96 Orioles, you know, most of the first half of the season, they're nip and tuck with the Yankees. At the end of June, they're 42 and 36. They're four games back of the Yankees. The Yankees actually really distanced themselves in August or in early July. Baltimore loses like six games in a row. They fall ultimately to about 10 games back. And then in August, they begin their charge. They're actually down 12 games. They're 12 games back of the Yankees on July 28th. Now, this is the first year of the wild card, so that was always in play. But July 28th, they're 12 games back. And by 
September 9th, they'd close that gap to two and a half. So they made up almost 10 games in just over a month. But the team itself, it's interesting because it's a lot of veterans. It's a lot of guys who haven't been playing together long. There's some malcontents there. Uh, Bobby Bonilla, I think, has a pretty well-earned reputation as a malcontent. And Davey Johnson and Cal Ripken are, and I'm going to read a passage from this book here, Davey Johnson and Cal Ripken do not get along. So this is a, a passage, and then we'll, you know, I'll, I'll have you guys react from this. It's The Birth of the Yankees by Joel Sherman. It's a book It's about 15, or excuse me, it's The Birth of a Dynasty by Joel Sherman. It's about the 96 Yankees, but this is about a Yankee-Oreo game where Johnson pulls Ripken for a pinch runner. So it says, The trouble that began brewing back when Davey Johnson pinch ran for Cal Ripken in the May 1st loss to the Yankees at Camden Yards had only grown. And that was he pinch ran for Ripken. Whoever he pinch ran for got picked off right away. And then that, that was the game that went 15 innings. So they said Ripken came out and whether it was like the sixth or seventh inning, whatever, for the pinch runner. Pinch runner got picked off. And Ripken just basically put his coat on and stared at Davey Johnson the rest of the game with his arms crossed as, as they played a whole full other game. But sorry, to go back to this. One reason Orioles owner Peter Angelos had enlisted Johnson was to try and bring the cult of Ripken under control. But he was having no success with Ripken, his followers, or the team as a whole. Roberto Alomar, Brady Anderson, Bobby Bonilla, and Rafael Palmaro infrequently ran, ran ground balls out with any hustle. Alomar, blah, 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 blah. I'm trying to see. Oh, yeah. In a Steinbrenner move in late June, Angelos asked his media relations department to have reporters call him after he had read that Ripken said the team needed more time to gel. Angelos told the Baltimore area media, the truth is the team is in desperate need of leadership on the field and in the clubhouse, and no one is more qualified to provide it than Cal Ripken. If Cal accepted the challenge with as much zeal as he plays, there is no question the Orioles would reach their potential. So it's just a sort of an example of like, even as a team is successful, you have, especially when there's veterans involved, you have these competing factions of the managers in there to do the owner's bidding. And the owner has for some reason got a grudge against his franchise player. He probably feels the franchise player has too much sway over to the organization i know you were only 10 did you have any sort of awareness at the time of johnson and ripkin not getting along or any of that so it was never johnson and ripkin and i know we've talked about this before and i i I tried to find it i know somewhere in this period of time cal was a free agent and i'm telling you the rumors were out there and like there was no internet you know i mean if unless it was on the prodigy internet dial up internet or whatever it was at the time there was there were thoughts that cal was going to go to the yankees the, if everyone was convinced that the yankees were going to come in with an offer and take away and cal obviously stays Probably good for the Yankees too that they didn't <laughs> well yeah that worked out pretty well maybe he would have yeah. played third I mean, he moved to third around that time anyway. Yeah, I was going to get true. to later, but go ahead. Sorry. Well, but no, it's so it's this, the issues were eventually become actually Angelos against Davey Johnson, which only takes like a couple years later. So the idea that Cal was even involved in all that, no one had any idea. And honestly, my first thought just goes to what well, the kind of the similar conversation we had before all those years of really none of it mattered. I mean, the team was going to be middling or the team was bad you know, all of a sudden now every game matters and, you know, who knows if there were signs, you know, maybe there was stuff Cal wasn't doing. Um, but Davey Johnson is held in 
for just the few years he's there, he's in Orioles history is like one of the, you know, just what could have been. So yeah, no idea. A couple points I want to make. I wonder if also the fact is that after 95, the streak is done. I mean, there's still a streak, but I wonder if Angelos and maybe Davey even feel like we don't need this guy as much anymore from a fan point of view, a drawing point of view. You got a guy, they got this beautiful new stadium. They got a team that's good. They're probably going to draw people regardless of whether or not Cal Ripken is around and still continuing to chase this streak. And now all of a sudden they've got this really good team that they feel like is underperforming. And where do you look? You look at your star. The other thing that I think is worth mentioning is that Davey Johnson, the only guy I can sort of maybe compare him to a little bit is like a Bill Parcells. You haven't seen a guy lose his job or leave his job after playoff seasons more than Davey Johnson. So things kind of peter out with the Mets in the 80s, but then he's he manages the Reds for three years. In 95, he goes 85 and 59, makes the playoffs, loses the NLCS, gets swept in the NLCS, gets fired by Marge Schott. Goes two years in Baltimore where he wins 88 and then 98 games and gets fired by Angelos. And I, in doing my research, one of the reasons why Davey Johnson got fired was that he fined a player. And I don't have the player's name off the top of my head. I think, it, I think it was Alomar. Oh, what was Alomar? That's exactly right. And we'll talk about Alomar's other issues in a minute. But he finds Roberto Alomar for some sort of conduct or something. And as I think probably we know, you know, sports fans know this, these fines tend to go to charity and somehow this Davy Johnson directed the fine to a charity that his wife was involved with somehow. And I guess that led Angelos to, to want to fire him. But then just to wrap up on Davy goes to the Dodgers for a couple of years, has one winning season and one losing season, but nonetheless in, in 2000, his second year of two, he wins 86 games then he's out of managing for 10 years, and then he goes to the Nationals and wins 98 games in 2012, goes to finish out his contract in 2013. The 2013 Nationals are kind of disappointing. They don't even make it back to the playoffs, although they do win close to 90 games. And then he has this dispute with the owner in D.C. about whether or not he had actually agreed to retire after the season. He wanted to come back, and they said, no, you retired. And so just like... You showed up the first day and somebody was sitting in his chair. Andrew and I have talked, I think, about at some point we need to go through somebody. We'll probably do a few different like this. Go through somebody, whether it's Babe Ruth or Bill Parcells or somebody where we sort of just like do like a series of episodes about the various stages of their careers. Davey Johnson might be a little bit of a dark horse candidate for that type of thing. Because you go from the 80s Mets to the... You know, the Reds with Marge shot whole own other story. You got the 90s Orioles like we're talking about now. And then on top of that, you got the early days of the Strasburg Harper Nationals team. So there's a lot there with Davey and not a guy who um, it's easy for him to make enemies. Let's put it that way. And, you know, as you were talking, who it kind of reminded me of, too, about guys who had good teams and then were forced to leave is Buck as you know, makes sense as we're talking about the 
Orioles and, and kind of the Yankees as well. Obviously, it's different, but there's certainly some some parallels there too. Okay, you got us to a place. Now get us over that level, and then when you don't, you're gone. You know? And another good comparison is Billy Martin. Well, yeah, but that's you. There's no comparison to Billy Martin. If Billy Martin had not drank himself to death, and I know he got into a car accident, but he was it was because he was drinking himself to death. That would have continued for five more years. He would have just continued to hire and fire Billy Martin every three months forever. That was never going to end. But we can we can we'll come back to that. So. I want to get to the playoffs because in addition to the ALCS, there's also a lot to talk about in the DS, but we do have to sort of detour to the last series of the year, the last regular season series of the year. By this point, the Orioles, you know, they're not going to catch the Yankees, but they're the wild card. And up in Toronto, Roberto Alomar and Dan, like you talked about with baseball still being in a lot of ways battered from the, 94 strike and sort of the implication that players are spoiled millionaires and, and all of that. And Roberto Alomar spits in the face of it's September 27th, 1996 against the blue Jays, the umpires, John Hirschbeck and Roberto Alomar is caught spitting on home plate umpire, John Hirschbeck. He would go on to say that there were, reasons for it and that Hirschbeck could use racial slurs against him but another one that it's hard to overestimate just how huge a deal this became at the time I just think the big thing with that was it was like the peak and I don't know if it would be the peak of Sports Center, but I just remember Sports Center, the amount of play that that got it was awful and like you said Andrew I think Al, if it's possible to do more damage after the incident, it was Alomar just what what he tried to backtrack and like how he tried to paint. And obviously, I don't think anyone ever verified what was said, but I, I think everyone kind of realized that it probably wasn't true what he was trying to say that Hirschbeck said. And it almost felt like that Steelers-Browns incident like, a couple of years ago it was just like all of a sudden we just will throw this out here to try and as if I, you know, it wasn't as bad as what I did. So it was just bad all around. Well, and I think you're also, there's another important piece of this that we need to fill in. And this is because this is from the, the Washington Post, the contemporary, contemporaneous story about this. Late Friday night, Alomar admitted he had spit at Hirschbeck, said he didn't regret it, and maintained that Hirschbeck had become, quote, real bitter since the death of his seven-year-old son, John, in 1993. The umpire's son died from adrenoleukodystrophy, ALD, an extremely rare and often fatal genetically transmitted disease. Hirschbeck also has another son for, uh, suffering from the disease. So, yeah, that, that's bad. Is, the quote is, I used to respect him a lot. He had a problem with his family when his son died. I know that's something real tough in life, but after that he changed personality-wise. He just got real bitter, which is obviously digging yourself further into a hole. The one this reminds me of sort of is, it's the opposite thing, but, well, who was the Maxwell on the Rockets in the 90s, Dan? Was it Vernon Maxwell or Cedric Maxwell? Vernon Maxwell. So Vernon Maxwell, after a game, jumped into the crowd and went after a fan. And everybody was like, oh, what a piece of garbage he is for doing that. And then it came out that the fan had said something about Vernon Maxwell's child who had just died. And everybody was like, well, he's kind of justified in that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So this feels like almost the opposite where it's like, 
even if he is bitter about something like it's just he just dug himself into a further hole. And then I guess baseball sort of, you know, baseball was swift with their announcement of their punishment, but not with their punishment, which was he was suspended, but the suspension wasn't going to take effect until the beginning of the regular season of 97. So he was able to play in the 96 playoffs. And as we will talk about here, play a monster role, particularly in the ALDS. So then every time he came to bat, I think to lead off the game as like a national TV broadcast would have to do, assuming there's new viewers. I think it was like basically top or bottom of the first Alomar would come to bat and they would basically re, you know, recap that exact incident. And it would just come up every game. The VHS we had of the 96 Yankees, they show in the ALCS games one and two with the stadium with fans with signs that say hit it here, Alomar with like targets and like pictures of spit on it. So, but let's let's move on to more positive from an Orioles. So they go in there, the wild card in 96. Actually, we should talk about this. They, in, they go into the playoffs as a wild card. They're the first, second wild card. The Yankees, you know, the, it's the second year of the wild card. And they're matched up against the Cleveland Indians, who are the defending American League champions. So obviously Cleveland's going to have home field because they're the, the division winners. The other division series is the Yankees against Texas. These are five game series and the Orioles win in four games in the fourth game. And we can talk more about the series if you want, but I just have the fourth game written down in the fourth game. It goes 12 innings and Roberto Alomar ties the game with a base hit in the ninth to force the extra innings. And then in the top of the 12th, Alomar hits a home run that gives the Orioles the lead and they ultimately end up winning the game because this was still when they were doing the dumb wild card gets the first two games and then the next three games are in Cleveland. So that certainly came into effect for the Yankees the year before. But um, so that was even though, you know, game four was in game five would have been in Cleveland, too, was the point I was trying to make. So, you know, they win and they win both games in Baltimore. They lose game three in Cleveland. And then in game four, they win this great extra inning game four to three in 12 innings. Yeah. I just remember it being a moment that was like, what, what is this? We just want a playoff series. Like, I don't even know what to do, but I just remember the big thing was what was looming next was the Yankees were waiting. You know, it was, that was, that was like, all right, now this is, you know, it, it was a new experience, but at the same time, you just knew what was coming next. And it was like, all right, it's time to get ready for this. And, and I think the reason for that, too, was they had played 13 times in the regular season that year, and the Yankees had won 10 of them. And that was the difference between – and a lot of them were, like we talked about, crazy 15-inning games or one-run games, but the difference between who won the division and who was the wild card was the head-to-head. And that the Yankees – you know, if they had split the head-to-head, Baltimore probably would have won the division, but since the Yankees had won – and I think the Yankees might have won – every game at Camden Yards or all but one game in the regular season at Camden. So it wasn't just like a home away thing, but you know, sort of you got to not to, we'll get to the ALCS cause I'm sure there's going to be some talk there, but the 96, I mean, that's the first series. That's the first playoff series they've been in and won since the, what the 83 ALCS at that point. They didn't make the playoffs after 83. Did they? Yeah, I think I think that would have been the first win. Yeah, and I just it's just dumb things like when especially you don't your team's not in it for so long. It's all of a sudden you're playing it 
you know, on Thursday at Fox at, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon and the playoff music and the, you know, the patriotic bunting around the stadium. It was just things that honestly, other than Cal's street game or the world, you know, the all-star game, I never saw a game with the Orioles actually involved in a game like that. Quick diversion here. And I have really fond memories of those 96 playoffs for obvious reasons. And I was a little older than you guys. So I, you know, I remember, you know, previous years, I remember 95 with the Yankees really well. And even some things in baseball playoffs, prior to the strike, but the year before there had been this sort of disastrous foray into baseball television called the baseball network, where basically games were all four playoff games were on at one time on two different networks. No, they were all four different games were on the same network at one time. And depending on the night, it would either be NBC or ABC. And this was the first year of the wild card. The first year of the wild card was supposed to be 94. There was a strike. Then there was 95. There was this whole baseball network thing. So 96 was the first year where you had these extra playoff games. So you would have, now you take it for granted and God knows where they're going to go with it in future years, but four baseball playoff games in a day. And like you said, Mike, you know, you'd come home from school. I remember that. And we're going to talk about the Jeffrey Mayer game in a few minutes. I'm sure that was a 4 PM game. And if you watch that game, you know, you kind of see the sun starting to set on Yankee Stadium by about like the, you know, the third or fourth inning or what it really was. All of that was really new. These week, you know, I think weekday playoff baseball is really cool. I always have. Um, I know people with people who have to work don't always love it, you know, myself included. But it, I just think there's something really cool about day playoff baseball. But so I think that just having all these games all the time for those first couple of days that we take that for granted now. I think you're right. And I didn't remember the mayor game was a like, it's, it's funny. I mean, I guess I remember 95 and I, I remember a little about 93. Actually, the thing I remember the most about 93 was the ALCS of 93 was the blue Jays against the white Sox, And during the, one of those games, they were talking about how Michael Jordan had just announced his retirement that day. That's like one of the only things I remember, but 96 is really the first postseason I fully remember. To me, like when you were talking about NBC and ABC, to me, the baseball playoffs growing up were on Fox. Yeah, like that's totally. what I remember is that. Hopefully we don't get a copyright strike for that. <laughs> Hopefully I did a bad enough job where we don't get a copyright strike. But anyway, I'll tell one. It's from later, but I'll tell one playoff um, weekday playoff. Game. When I was a senior in high school, so this would have been 03, the year the Yankees ultimately lost the uh, World Series to the Marlins. The first round they were playing, I think it was Minnesota. And we're lucky as Yankee fans because they're almost always in prime time in the playoffs. But for whatever reason, this day they were playing at like one. It must have been one. It was one. Got out, I got out of high school at 145. And it was still football season. So I'd practice. Practice proper didn't start till three. We were supposed to have weightlifting from two to three. So we all moved our cars after school down to where the locker rooms and the practice field were. And at about two, I said to the coach, I was like, Oh, I, I can't find my cup. I, and I had planned this ahead of time. I was like, I can't find my cup. I got to go to my car and look for my cup. And somehow looking for that cup took an hour. And, and every couple of minutes I would either go from my driver's side to my passenger side and then to the two back seats and just go sit in my 88 Ford Taurus and just, have my hands stretched out like this, like I was looking for a cup. And I just sat there for an hour and I finally, you know, I was listening to the game on, uh, on guy, it would have been WCBS back then. And as I walked back in at about two fifty, my coach just goes, how was the game? 
Because I didn't have a, you didn't have a cell phone, and if you had a cell phone, you weren't getting scores on it. So he knew exactly what I was doing, but I was like, uh, what? <laughs> he just he knew exactly. But anyway, yes, I agree with you. That was cool. So I guess we should now move into the '96 ALCS: Yankees Orioles. Uh, Yankees are the AL champion or the AL East champions. Orioles are the wild card. They obviously know each other very well. Game one will forever be known as the Jeffrey Mayer game. And this was a game for anyone who somehow has gotten through this much of the podcast without knowing any of the details. What was it, the seventh inning? Dan, do you know? I think it was. I, I'll check on yeah. that. I think it was It was a later inning, but not the eighth or the ninth. Benitez wasn't the closer this season, so he wouldn't have been in in like the ninth or anything like that. And I'll, I'll let Mike take over, but I'll, I'll tell the objective version of this, which is it. The ball is hit to right field. Tony Tarasco is under it in right field. It's absolutely not going out. I still maintain there's a slight chance it gets over his glove and hits the wall, but it's definitely not going out. And he goes up to catch it. And Jeffrey Mayer, who was, what, 12 at the time, a fan in right field, leans his hand out and robs the ball. This is the playoff, so there's extra umpires in left field and right field, ostensibly to be there for just such a moment and they rule that there was no fan interference these days there'd be review it's funny because it's the worst time for it from an umpiring standpoint 10 or 15 years earlier there wouldn't have been a camera on it so they wouldn't have been able to go oh it's a terrible call it would have just been like a fuzzy thing and then 10 years later there would have been replay and they would have said no that was the wrong call but in 96 we had good cameras on it but there was no replay mechanism they rule it a home run. The Yankees go on to win game one. It was the bottom of the eighth inning, so late. And Tarasco had just gone out to right field to replace Bobby Bonilla as a defensive replacement. Jim Larratt strikes out looking to start the inning. And so basically the first ball hit in play since Tarasco's been out there, and this is what happens. And and again, I'll go to – I'll let Mike talk in a second, but – to f- sort of further rub salt in the wounds. Pretty much immediately, Jeffrey Mayer is like a hero. He was on the Today Show the next day, and he was all over TV and the radio. And for years, we would joke when they would do the, the ground rules at the stadium and say, reaching into the field of play can do this and result in ejection. And uh, you were the first one to ever say it, Dan, and then I parroted it for years. Or you can be made a citywide hero. <laughs> um, but anyway, Mike, I'll, I'll let you have the floor here. And um, we'll get into it. And honestly, like I, me and you have had spent many an hour arguing this play. And, I, and I've never once actually said that Tarasco would have caught it, to be completely honest. I mean, all, the hardest part about it was I'll never forget. Like, it's one of those moments for me where I can I can close my eyes and I can picture the exact the the how well lit the living room was. at the Like I can transport myself to this moment it wasn't HD. Like I just remember seeing the ball hit and I just remember going like he immediately, like I knew it was fan interference the second I saw it. And in one of those moments, like you said, you had the umpire out there and it was Rich Garcia as the umpire, another, you know, another guy who's, especially when I, you see later, I've seen Rich Garcia signs pictures of that moment, which is another thing that I was just not a huge fan of, but you see it, it was immediately fan interference and then even to have Tarasco immediately pointing up, like he's pointing at Jeffrey Mayer. It's just every part of it is just showing that it's fan interference and just the idea that the guy closest 
if I could see it from my living room, how he didn't see it. Like I said, I don't think Tarasco catches it. I think it hits the top of the wall and then who knows what happens from there. It's just, I think it became a bigger deal for, as I'm sure you'll get into, it just felt like the Orioles couldn't beat the Yankees. It just felt like everything was against them. They couldn't get over the hump. And then it becomes, honestly, it's the beginning of what Armando Benitez does to my childhood as an Orioles pitcher. And it just, it's, every part of it stinks. It just stinks. The Yankees end up winning that game in the 11th. Bernie Williams hits a home run. The only thing I've ever said is I don't think it would have flipped the series. I do think the Yankees might have lost that game. And obviously then game two at Yankee Stadium, Baltimore wins five to three. David Wells gets the win, actually. The Orioles score a couple of runs late. Trying to see exactly what happened in this. The Yankees stranded a ton of runners. Armando Benitez came in to slam the door on the budding rally as the Orioles tied the series one to one. Brady Anderson and Todd Zeal hit back-to-back one-out singles off of Jeff Nelson. Roberto Alomar sacrificed fly made it 5-3. to three. The Orioles and Yankees leave Yankee Stadium tied 1-1. to one. The Orioles have stolen home field. So, and, that's, and that legitimately is the only argument I've really ever been able to, like, that actually I feel like holds any water to that series, is if they somehow win game one, if that doesn't go the way it does, there is the potential they're up 2-0. And then game three is started by Mike Messina. So it's like in your head as an Orioles fan, you're up 2-0 with the ace on the hill. You know, here we go. And it just didn't happen. We won't go blow by books. I want to spend a lot of time in 97. The, the strong answer is the Yankees. The summary here is they go down to Camden Yards where the Yankees had, had, had really dominated them all season. And they do talk in this book about how, not in the playoffs merely, but in the regular season, how nice Camden Yards was probably hurt the Orioles because a lot of Yankee fans, like especially if you lived in New Jersey or whatever, were like, oh, pretty nice trip. Go down to Baltimore, watch the Yankees, and uh, you know they'll probably win, and then we'll get on the highway back home. And especially back then, it was a lot cheaper than going to Yankee State. So the Yankees, game three is that weird game where Todd Zeal accidentally throws the ball into the ground. where he, like, Bernie Williams gets up and scores. Yeah, Bernie Williams get, it says, uh, Jeter started the rally with a double and scored on Bernie Williams' RBI single to tie the game. Martinez followed by hitting an opposite field double. As the relay came in from left field, Todd Zeal caught the ball and then faked the throw towards second. However, the ball slipped out and his hand and straight towards the ground. Uh, Ripken ran for it. Williams scored. They win five to two. Game four, the Yankees win eight to four. They score three runs in the eighth inning to, to you know, put it out of reach. And then in game five, the Yankees win six to four. Baltimore scored two Actually, Baltimore scored one run in the set or in the eighth and then two runs in the ninth to cut it to two. And what I always remember about the end of this game was Ripken making the last out and busting it down to first and diving head first into first base, trying to, you know, prolong the season and, and prolong the game. So it's a five game series, but it's obviously you know, game one is that crazy extra inning game. There's some close games. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're an Orioles fan at the time, do you feel like you left one on the tape? Well, and the one thing I, I will say in a second, it obviously ended up being wrong, but I do think there was a thought at the time, probably among both teams and maybe even among, and definitely among the national fan base was like, whoever wins this series is getting ready to donate their body to the Braves anyway. 
I guess as an Oriole fan, do you feel like, hey, this was a great year? Do you feel like we left one on the table? I, I don't know. You know what I mean? I know, again, I know you're in fifth grade, so. No, and I just remember, it's it just, I, it, I guess it's excuse making. It just went back to, it was easy then to all of a sudden go, oh, well, you know, if Jeffrey Mayer, like Jeffrey Mayer became painted for that whole series. And like you just said, it goes 4-1, Yankees win. It just, it was like, Orioles history feels marred with just like what ifs and just trying to figure out like if only this one play had happened slightly different. So it just fell into that. So, but the big hope was, like I said, pretty much that whole roster is coming back the next year. And it's like, all right, you know, we finally, we've reached this point. Now it's time to take another step. So that's a great segue to 97. Before we talk about 97, one thing that we neglected to mention prior to the 96 season that I really think you do have to bring up is, we talked about hiring Davey Johnson and some of the other guys, Hall of Famers. They brought in Alomar and they brought Murray back. Maybe the most important Hall of Famer that they bring in late 95, early 96 is Pat Gillick, who's the general manager who you don't see a lot of modern day general managers in the Hall of Fame in baseball. I think, I mean, Theo Epstein will be one day. Cashman probably will be one day. But I, I'm, I'm hard pressed other than Pat Gillick to think of a, a, just an honest to God general manager you know, from our lifetimes, who's been elected into the Hall of Fame, Gillick, who uh, gets his start in Toronto and builds the the championship Toronto teams in 92 and 93, only is with the Orioles for three years as general manager, 96, 97, and 98. But he's really the one who puts this team together. Then he goes on to build really good teams in Seattle and then closes out with a championship in Philly in 2008. So, Somebody else you have to keep in mind is all of a sudden they have probably the best executive of a generation calling the shots for this team for a couple of years. Well, and then you go through those Orioles teams. There's nothing homegrown on yeah. their teams. Like it's it's all, and you're absolutely right. Gillick actually brought legitimacy to like the organization side now. And for like, that's what this whole period of time was like, all right, we actually have a general manager. We actually have a manager. We actually have... So now free agents are coming, you know, it just, but that was, I mean, there's a whole other side to the Orioles. It's just, they, there's nothing homegrown. I mean, I'll, you, you go back to Messina and Ripken, you know, I think Chris Hoyles was the catcher for a stint, like he's homegrown. But other than that, it was pretty much all outside guys being brought in. So as we go to 97, the only major change, I guess, worth really is that sort of pitching trade that wasn't really a trade, but Wells goes to the Yankees. They get Jimmy Key. So the starting rotation for most of 97, the top four guys is Musina, Erickson, Key, Kamenicki. They all have winning records. Musina wins 15 games with a 3.2. Erickson wins 16 with a 3.69. Key also wins 16 with a 3.4. And Scott Kamenicki is 10 and 6 with a 4. The other thing I thought was interesting is that Arthur Rhodes wins 10 games out of the bullpen. Which is, if, if you have their stats up, what's look at Randy Myers' stats as their closer that year. Randy Myers was had a one point. He was two and three, which I know doesn't really matter. He had a one point five one ERA. He appeared in sixty one games and had forty five saves. Twelve, or excuse me, had ten earned runs in sixty innings pitched, or fifty nine point two. If we want to be technical about it, Randy Myers was fourth in the Cy Young voting in nineteen ninety seven. And this is even crazier. He was fourth in the MVP voting wow. in the American League in 1997. Think about that. Randy Myers in 1997, 
for now who would have been the MVP in 97 in the American League was it Griffey I'll check hang on yeah it was Griffey so Griffey was you know Griffey was kind of uh, he was the only guy who got any first place votes Andrew do you know who second place was in 97 in the MVP voting was it Constantino Martinez? It was Tino. Randomly hit forty-five home runs that year, but it was it gets forgotten because it's the one year out of that the Yankees didn't win the World Series. Yeah, exactly. He was crazy that year, Tino. And then Frank Thomas, and then number four is Randy Myers, which is just yeah. I point that out because as we'll get to when they get to the playoffs, Randy Myers like doesn't feature in any of these like crushing Orioles losses. Armando Benitez seems to be on the hill in like every key moment. And I gotta say. This is a pretty good bullpen for them. Myers is he has the year we talked about. Like Andrew said, Arthur Rhodes wins 10 games, doesn't start a single game. So these all were wins in relief, which is just 10 wins in relief in the 90s. That's a that's a lot of wins for a relief pitcher. Benitez is still decent. I know people like to joke about Benitez, but he was a good relief pitcher. And then you got a Roscoe at age 40 pitching in 71 games with a 2.32 ERA. So, yeah, you got some, you know, that's a pretty good bullpen for a team that's mostly remembered for its offense. That's a that's a good Oriole bullpen in 97. I do think the one thing we should also talk about is I believe this is the first year that Ripken is predominantly a third baseman. Baseball reference has him listed as a third baseman in 97. Yeah, he, he moves over. This is when Mike Bordick really becomes the shortstop they're better than the the 96 team here. This is probably the best regular season team they had in a very long time. Probably the best overall team. They go 98 and 64. They edge out the Yankees for the division. And they then, go wire to wire this year too. They, oh, they, they go wire to wire. Yeah. Seven. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they, they win the division. They get to, they get back to the playoffs and in the 97 ALDS, they play the Seattle Mariners. I believe I mm-hmm. They win. They start. I think they're still doing this dumb thing with the first two games. They had to have gotten rid of that pretty soon after this, but they win both games in Seattle nine to three. Each game is nine to three. So they come back to Baltimore up two to nothing. They lose game three. And then in game four, they win three to one. Were you, were you, you were at a game in this postseason, weren't you? Were you at this game? So I was at game one of the ALCS, oh. so the Scott Erickson game where he starts against the Indians. But, yeah, no, the big thing with this series is Messina beats Randy Johnson head-to-head twice. And I wrote these down because I think it's just – it's another whole portion of Messina's career that I feel like doesn't get the credit. In the two games against Randy Johnson, he throws 14 innings, only gives up seven hits, and has 16 strikeouts. And that's just – so that's just the ALDS and two matchups against Randy. Yeah, I, I knew you were at a game where you seen to have like a great performance. So they win, you know, they beat the Mariners in four games. And on the other side of the bracket, the Yankees blow a two to one series lead to the Indians. So the Indi- so instead of, I think a lot of people probably were anticipating, oh, it's going to be the Yankees and the Orioles again. They end up with the Cleveland Indians instead, who they had beaten in the division series the year before. And that brings us to the 97 ALCS. And we could talk about specifics here in a minute, but I just wanted to point out that this is a six-game series. Every game the Orioles lose, they lose by one run. 
Game three, they lost in 12 innings. And game six, they lose in 11 innings. So, obviously, 96, from my standpoint, and sort of nationally, because it was the Yankees, because there was Jeffrey Mayer, because the Yankees went on to win the World Series, gets a lot of attention. Looking at this series, I'm like, Jesus, I feel like this one objectively is is one they were. I, don't, I seriously don't mean this like I'm trying to twist the knife, but this feels to me more like the one they left on the table. No, this one hurts way. That's why I said this one hurts way worse than 96. This one, like I, we can talk with Jeffrey Mayer all day. It's this series that hurts. I mean, I, I think there's a game they lose on a walk-off like Marquise Grissom Homer, if I remember right. There's one game they legitimately lose in Cleveland and I think the Indians are trying like a suicide squeeze at one point. Benitez throws it in the dirt, if I remember right. And the catcher, I think, just assumed that he fouled it off, which everyone apparently thinks the ball, like he fouls it off. Well, the ball gets away. Well, he doesn't go for it because he's like, well, it's a foul ball. Well, the umpire is the only guy in the ballpark who goes, no, he didn't foul it off. And the run scores from third and the Indians win. And it's just, have, again, the have, what ifs. Um says, uh, the Indians held a one nothing lead in the ninth, but Jose Mesa blew the save, and Marquise Grissom lost a fly ball from Brady Anderson and the lights, that went to, and it went to extra innings. Randy Myers on the mound for Baltimore in the 12th. Marquise Grissom walked. Then a single by Tony Fernandez moved him to third. With one out, Omar Vizquel motioned to bunt. When the pitch came, it passed through the strike zone with Vizquel apparently missing the ball. The ball got away from Orioles catcher Lenny Webster, allowing Grissom to score the winning run. Webster and Myers thought the ball was fouled off and did nothing to stop Grissom, but the ball was not ruled foul, although Orioles manager Davey Johnson argued the call. The umpire's call stood. So that was game three, and then the next night they lost in the bottom of the ninth where they were down seven to six. They scored a run in the top of the ninth to tie it, and then in the bottom of the ninth, Sandy Alomar singled in the winning run to give the Indians an eight to seven lead and a three games to one lead in the series. In game five, Orioles bounce back and win four to two. Actually, another, it was two to nothing. Orioles scored two runs in the top of the ninth. Then Cleveland scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth, but the Orioles held on to win. And then game six, back in Baltimore, one to nothing in 11 innings. And this game six that they lose here, this is crazy. This Indians team is stacked, by the way. Jim Tomey, 40 home runs. Matt Williams, who'd come over from San Francisco, 32 home runs. David Justice, 33 home runs. Manny Ramirez, 26 home runs. So they got, what, one, two, three, four guys with, um, you know, close to 30 home runs. You know, Hall of Famer in Tomey. Manny, who probably would be a Hall of Famer if it wasn't for some of the off-the-field stuff. They get beat in a one nothing game in extra innings on a home run by Tony Fernandez of all people thinking of, I guess the one thing I would say from an, and and truthfully, and again, I, I fully understand that nobody wants to hear a Yankees fan complain about 97 where they robbed us of winning five straight world series. The one thing I will say about the 97 Indians is even though they ended the Yankees season and they ended the Orioles season, if you're an Indians fan in 19 and you think about 1997, they feel much more pain about the way their season ended than the pain they inflicted on anyone else that year because Jose Mesa blew that game seven and a team that had been, the Indians hadn't won a World Series in 50. They still haven't won one, but they hadn't won a World Series in 50 years. 
and a team that had been around for five minutes that nobody had ever thought about before 1997 beats them on a walk-off in the bottom of the ninth inning. So they got the pain they inflicted that year. They got back tenfold a week or two later. So, so they lose in 97. And again, at the time, you look at it and it's, okay, this is a team that they've been to the ALCS two years in a row. They, you know, they seem to be getting closer. Yeah, they have a lot of veterans, but there's no reason to believe this is it. But it kind of turns out that this is it. Ray Miller becomes the manager in 98. They fall to 79 and 83. But really the big thing in, 80, in 98 was September 20th, their last home game of the season against the Yankees when the managers go out to exchange lineup cards and Cal Ripken Jr. is not in the lineup for the Orioles. And the streak comes to an end at 20, or was it? 2632, is that the number, Mike? Yep. So he obviously, his decision, he, you know, wasn't like they decided, well, we need to give the kid a chance here on September 20th. But um, what are your memories and thoughts about, you know, him deciding, hey, it's time to, uh, to bring it to an end? If I, I wish I knew then what that season was really showing, like it was the end for Cal, it was the end of, any semblance of competitive baseball for the Orioles for a very long time. It was just weird. I remember it was almost more interesting what watching that game. And, you know, I think it was Ryan minor is who's your trivia con question for whoever filled in for him. It was just, I remember they kept showing him in the dial. It was almost every four pitches. They would just cut to the dugout just to see what Cal was doing. And, you know, like what he is. So I just, it just begins this Orioles thing of just, we're going to try and hang on here. We're going to not draft anybody. We're just going to patch holes. 98 is when they sign Albert Bell and that whole disaster starts. And it just, uh, you know, I, I think that year they signed Joe Carter, Doug Drabeck. Like it just becomes yeah, it just sad attempts to make them competitive. I have some guys written down here too. At one point, Will Clark, they signed, I think in 99. Norm Charlton comes on the team like this year. Like uh, it's just, guy is the closer for the Mariners play 98 though I used to bring him in all the time I will say I wrote some a note down about this season and I saw this and I thought you'd appreciate so on a team in 98 that had 38 year old Joe Carter 35 year old Doug Drabeck 41 year old Jesse Orozco and 35 year old Norm Charlton the Orioles released Jamie Moyer this year because they felt he was too old (laughs) I believe I believe he pitches for another decade after this yes he, he was with the Phillies throwing the ball 58 miles an hour and somehow winning 11 or 12 games a year. If we're going to talk 98, we have to talk about it. The, the, like the last great Yankees Orioles moment. This is what I thought we were building towards. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's. That was- I mean, so the Orioles, we, you know, we're, you're, you've just explained it. The Orioles are tank. Like the Orioles are just collapsing. There's nothing left. I'm the only Orioles fan I know in my life, and I'm just hanging on to that this Orioles-Yankees is a rivalry. And then we get this massive brawl that breaks out featuring Armando Benitez, Strawberry. And, like, one of my last great moments is Orioles reliever Alan Mills, like, running into the Yankees dugout and just, like, throwing haymakers at people. Yeah, and this – sorry, go ahead, Dan. I'll let you go. You sound like you're about to say something. Well, and the funniest thing about this fight is two of the Yankees who are the most 
active in the fight are Graham Lloyd, who's like six seven, and Daryl Strawberry, who's a really tall, thin guy himself. And it's funny too; it's not surprising to me because the Yankees, you know, Derek Jeter was not a fighter. Bernie was not a fighter. You could tell when you watch that that Daryl is like something's triggered in him. Like he's he's back with the Mets. It, it it's eighty six. Darrow was back at Club Fifty Four. Or, or, Darrow was back at the China Club in nineteen eighty seven, and uh, somebody from Rick James's posse had said something that him and Harry Carson didn't appreciate. They <laughs> were about to have problems. <laughs> like no, I, I, but even just on the field, you know, you you, you got the feeling that Darrow felt like he was back playing the Phillies or the Cubs or the Astros in nineteen eighty six, and it was like this is what we do. We we throw down when one of our guys gets hit and. It's funny, too, because I was just reading an article and somebody talks about how Benitez drilled the usually mild-mannered Tino Martinez. And I don't remember Tino Martinez as being mild-mannered. I would characterize that as a mischaracterization. But, you know, it was – and it's crazy, too, because then Benitez ends up on the Yankees. I guess it's like five years later. But still, you know, Benitez ends up, I think, the following years when he goes to New York to pitch for the Mets. Yeah, so – there's there's that so some signs of life there you know they start bringing in some veteran guys we talked about albert bell will clark and it's funny too because that had worked for them for a little while in the past bringing in some of these guys you know bonilla and bringing eddie murray back and then they keep doing it but it just the bottom falls out and it's just not working anymore and it was i think it's also worth noting that much like johnson pat gillick leaves after the 98 season also yeah, and, and I'll I'll end in 01, and then we'll we'll talk about sort of the resurgence a few years ago, just so we can end on a positive note. 01 is no matter what you're sort of, you know, you could say it ends after 97, you could say it ends when the streak ends. 01, they fall to 63 and 98. At the end of that season, Nusina leaves, Ripken retires, and that's really, I mean, that's sort of totally the. Uh, any semblance of that team is is gone at that point. And, you know, you're left with, and I'll let Mike get the last word on this, but you're left with some really good teams, some really packed stadiums, and sort of a fleeting moment across the sky of, of fun, um, you know, fun teams. But, and Dan, I feel like we've talked about this, and I'm a little worried we've made too much of this about our fandom in this era too, but... A little bit of like with the Knicks where it's like every moment is fun, but it's like, oh, we're going to have fun talking about the 97 team. But it's like, you know, the end of that story has to be about that damn ALCS. I'll let you in. I apologize if it's too deep a question, Mike, but like sort of reflecting on teams that you loved growing up and that were good and you have good memories of. But, you know, the very end of those memories has to come with. Ah, and then they blew that game in the ninth or Jeffrey Mayer did this or they signed the wrong guy. You know what I mean? How, how do you compartmentalize that and still try to remember the good times, but not, you know, how they all ended, so to speak? Yeah, it's just that's being an Orioles fan. It really is. I mean, just uh, those teams were a blast. Like I said, it just you were around me as we got older and you know, when the stuff about Palmero came out and it was like, you know what, those teams, they were fun. I had a blast. Like I said, it was the best times of my childhood was going to those games. You know, like I said, I was at game one of the ALCS with my dad and these great memories. And then it's like, 
you kind of look at the team and it's like Messina is eventually wearing pinstripes, you know, Cal Cal's with the bright spot, you know, Brady's tainted. Maybe Palmero's absolutely tainted. Alomar has his issues and it just becomes like, you end up apology. You, like you almost don't want to tell people like you're an Almond Orioles fan, you know? And like you said, they tried to, they tried to patch it together and it just, it is what it is. It's just, it's, it's, I end up fighting. Like I said, the fights I fought the most were just trying to tell people like how good Messina was. And it was just, but that, and then becomes the bummer after that is once Cal and Messina are gone, you almost are embarrassed at who your all-star game representative is for a decade, just because there's just nothing there. Yeah. And and I'll, I'll say, and I, and I seriously don't mean, I like when we were in college and you, you know, I, your big guy then was Jason Marcakis because it was like he was young, he was exciting, he was he seemed like he could be a cornerstone. But then, as, as happens a lot, it was injuries and ultimately, I mean, he ended up having a decently long career in a few other places. And it was Eric Bedard was mm-hmm. again another good pitcher, but it's like ultimately, where do you go to Seattle eventually? And that's actually yeah, Bedard ends up being what re- is the resurgence because they end up flipping him to Seattle for Adam Jones and a bunch of other guys, and that actually finally starts to turn team around. But yeah, it's like like I said, you end up being embarrassed at who your All Star Game guy is, and you know it's just mm. Let, let's just end on that. So there was a couple of what did they make the playoffs two years in a row? I mean, what was it? 14, they played the Yankees in the ALDS when they finally – was it 14 they got to the playoffs against the Yankees? 12. 12, 12 right? Yeah, because okay. they win the first ever – the one game play-in. They throw Joe Buck or whoever – sends Joe Saunders out there for the Orioles, and he somehow beats the Rangers. And Yeah. And then they, they go five with the Yankees. Um, I was actually at game five when uh, Sabathia pitched a really good game, and the, and the Yankees ended up beating them in five. And then did they make the playoffs again between then and 15? So 13, they don't, I don't think they did. That's the big Chris Davis season, which speaking of guys signed the wrong guy. Uh, but yeah, no, 14's the big year. Cause 14's the year they, you know, oh. they, they get Detroit in the first round. And I'm honestly, I was like, all right, well, I've, I'm an Orioles fan. I know how this goes because that Tigers rotation that year was Scherzer price and Verlander and the Orioles sweep them. So here I am super excited and they get swept by the Royals in the ALCS. And it was just, like I said, it's being an Orioles fan. And I feel like 14 has to be, cause it's not like, Oh, and then we ran into the big bad Yankees or we ran into the Red Sox or whoever. It's like, it's another kind of plucky underdog out of nowhere team, you know? Right. What I mean? So it's, and then it looks like two years later, they're in the wild card game against Baltimore that they lost. But, um, not against Baltimore. It's Toronto. Yeah. Which is the famous game of having your basically another Cy Young-esque closer sitting in the bullpen while Ubaldo Jimenez loses the season. So just like I said, the Orioles fandom is just marred with what ifs and what could have been. I forgot about that. Yeah, show well, who who was the closer? It was was it Britain? It was Britain. Yeah. yeah and then was, the, so he never him and Buck were just never the same. And then they end up moving them to the Yankees. Just be, it was, I mean, his season that year was just unbelievable. And he, why he, he could have caught the final home run that got hit at that point. I I remember that now Buck took all sorts of crap for leaving. Ubaldo. Yeah. For leaving him. And for, especially for leaving Britain, just sitting in the bullpen the whole time. I'd forgotten about that. 
Well, my efforts to end on a positive note didn't really go very well because now we're talking about a different era of painful losses. But I guess if, to be pot, like what those teams showed is like, it, look, it's obviously difficult in the division they play in and with the ownership and all that, but like it's possible. I mean, they can build a good team again. It seems like the real, the real cardinal sin of this last era was just that they gave big money to the wrong guy. You know, they, a team like the Orioles, you can really, it's kind of like the Rays where it's like, you can only afford to give big money to one guy and you better be right about it. The Rays were right about Evan Longoria. They did it early and they let other guys walk. The Orioles were unfortunately not right about Chris Davis, you know, so, but it is possible. Um, yeah, which pains me because I'll always assume just want that deal I wanted Manny Machado to get. And we chose, you know, whatever they couldn't come to an agreement. It's just, you know, currently what they're doing, I, I'm not going to lie. I mean, we all know what it is. You know, this is the way they're going about it. And honestly, with this owner and Angelos, it, I think this is really the only way they're going to do it. Because, yeah, it just it's it is what it is. I don't like it. It's it's a bummer to go into a season where you got no, like no hope. I mean, we're finally now at the point where they're actually calling up guys that I think could legitimately be on a decent team, which is nice. It's just, you're just praying for the next guy, the next guy to come in and just hope. And sadly, hopefully there's an ownership sale also at some point, but just, it's a fun ballpark. Like it's a fun state. Like I love Baltimore. I always love Baltimore. It's just, it's, it's these great memories. And I just want to have those fun weekends again in Camden Yards where it's not 80% Red Sox or Yankees fans and it's just it's actually orange in the crowd well I guess with that we can bring our tour of the Orioles especially focused on the mid 90s to an end I it's a very interesting team it's you know it's a combination of the veterans obviously Ripken as he's getting towards the later part of his career some of the guys they brought in the great pitching with Mucina. And it's just, it's an interesting era of baseball to get into because, you know, you have it's immediately post strike. It's sort of the nascent stages of the steroid era, but it's not the 98, 99 to like the real, you know, crazy steroid era. And it's like the first time there's a couple of playoff rounds and they were a legitimate, they played like a big market team for a couple of weeks, couple of years there. And, you know, and then, then if you just start with Ripken and, and the streak and everything. And just the, the number of interesting guys that were in and out, Alomar, Baines, Murray, Bonilla, David Wells, all, all these guys who are just have interesting stories seem to be in and out of Baltimore for those couple of years. Check out what David Wells' hair looks like when he's an Oreo, by the way. There's, there's some hair going on there. <laughs> um, there is some... some I know it was 1995, but there was some late 80s hair that he's got going on with the Orioles. Mike, do you have anything else you'd like to leave us with, even if it's just blatant go Orioles homerism? Oh, like I said, I'm I'm hopefully looking for. I know, like you said, our ballpark tour. I'm hoping if if we drag out this tour long enough, we might eventually get to a competitive Orioles team when we get back to Camden Yards. We'll look forward to that. I'll look forward to any uh, trip I take to Camden Yards because it's always uh, it's always a special experience. And like you said, the no matter what else else is going on, 
could be like Oakland where the team's not very good and you also have to go to the Oakland Coliseum. At least a bad day with the Orioles is at least spent at Camden Yards. And there's, that, there's no sewage in the locker rooms at Camden Yards that I know of. Except the players. Um, so, Mike, thanks so much for, for joining us and for sharing your memories of, the, of your time as an Orioles fan. We really enjoyed having you. Andrew, did you have anything else to add? No, I think it was uh, it was a nice nice stroll down a you know some of these teams that are underlooked, sort of not fully examined, and I think this is definitely one of them. I was uh, happy to dig into it. We'll talk next week about the 1890s team who did win some championships, but um, instead of being on the wrong end of bad calls and cheating, they were on the right end of bad calls and cheating and inventing the Baltimore chop, which applied both to purposely hitting the ball off the ground into the air and also chopping your opponent in the throat when the umpire wasn't looking and cutting his windpipe. Um, One of those may or may not be true. You'll have to tune in next episode to find out. (laughs) Until then, thank you to Mike Petty, and I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. Hi, I'm Oz Davis of the True the Goats podcast here at the Sports History Network. I'd like to take a minute to tell you about quite possibly the greatest website of all time newspapers.com if you're listening to this podcast or any of them at the sports history network you're probably in sports history and you probably also know that for learning about anything prior to say 1990 online the typical search engines like are nearly completely useless but then there's newspapers.com newspapers.com gives you access to over 640 million pages worth of news from north america britain ireland and more dating of 1798 to last week do up a search for Super Bowl one, the 36th Berlin Olympics, Wayne Gretzky's first game, whatever. Newspapers.com takes you there with historical flavor that search engines like just don't give you. And now get a free one-week subscription to Newspapers.com by visiting SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. With a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of Myth Podcasts and other Sports History Network shows. That's SportsHistoryNetwork.com slash newspapers. Newspapers.com. Way better for searches than you know what I'm talking about. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.